Because her mother was present on the night the German submarine crew came ashore, Mary Rose McCarthy has obviously had an interest in events of March 12, 1945. But most of her interest has been channeled towards the Coast Watch Service, which was operating at that time. Mary Rose has spent a lot of time researching this group. Many relatives of those who were members of Coast Watch feel that, as a whole, they were treated very badly, and certainly not recognised or rewarded for the tremendous service they gave to the country during World War II. They were supplied with oil skins, but the oil skins were no protection against the elements. The little fire barely burned turf, you know, it was very rudimentary. And relatives I've spoken to of some of the coast watchers feel quite upset. The brutal conditions, it has been described as it was no better than lying in a ditch, and that they weren't treated very well. And there's the feeling that the war in Europe ended in May, and the very next day these men were stood down and were never recognised. They never got pension, they, you know, uh, even though they had been for seven years defending our neutrality, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And the Coast Watchers at the Galley Head, as well as the 11 men who came ashore at Galley Head, there were 37 other crew from the U-boat picked up off the coast at Landor because the men at the Galley Head had phoned Court McSherry lifeboat, had them out looking for, for them. So in essence, those men at the Galley Head saved the lives of 48 men. Albeit Germans, which mightn't have been very popular at the time, maybe because Germany was considered the enemy, even yeah. though we were neutral. But that has not really been acknowledged in any way. And I think that's rather a shame. And that's, that's why I started doing this research and digging into it a bit more. And Would the Coast Guard then be the follow-on from the Coast um, Watch? The Coast Watchers was, I suppose, the start of setting up of the, the Coast Guard service and eventually the Irish Navy, which in the very beginning was all part of the, what they called the Defence Forces. And then the Navy split off into its own as, as Ireland progressed and, mm-hmm. and had personnel and, and trained them. And the Coast Watchers went for training regularly at what they called Fort Westmoreland, which is now the naval base at Hall Bolan. But of course, it, would have, it had its British name still in 1939. I am very grateful to Linda and everybody at Military Archives at Cahill Brewer Barracks in Dublin for supplying me with copies of the Coast Watch report for the Galleyhead Lighthouse, not only for the night that the submarine was scuttled, but for the entire month of March 1945. And we'll look more closely at these reports in the next programme. By the time that Klaus Becker had manoeuvred U-260 off the West Cork coast, the submarine was on its ninth patrol. These patrols lasted anything from 72 days to ones for five and seven days. By the time he had reached the West Cork coast on his ninth patrol, he and his crew were at sea for 23 days. But if you look at the profile page for U-260, her complete lack of action is striking. In all, just one ship had been sunk by U-260 in almost three years. A commander of a German U-boat, who was also involved with the legendary wolf packs, not willing to roll up his sleeves and get involved in the dirty business of combat? It's unthinkable. To get a slant on this, I return to former diver and member of the Towhead Coast Guard, Brendan Cahill. The reason that is put forward for that is that the initial commander that, that took command of the U-260 when she, when she was first commissioned was a chap called... Perkhold, Hubertus Perkhold, and it was very shortly after she was actually commissioned that she saw her first combat. She was commissioned in 1942 and Perkhold commanded her until 1944. In December 1942, one large uh, Allied merchant vessel was sunk, the Empire Wagtail by Perkhold. In 1944, a second commander 
Klaus Becker took command of the U-260. And basically at that stage, he seemed to drop off the, the radar. And what is believed that this chap, Klaus Becker, was actually quite skilled in negotiating close operations in coastlines that he was able to sneak into harbours and that he was able to get close to enemy shorelines or in our case neutral shorelines and what it is believed that when Becker took command of her this propensity he had for intelligence operations led him to be used to drop spies to do close reconnaissance in relation to as I say harbours and that he was basically collecting he was operating for the Abwehr the German intelligence agency dropping and collecting spies and doing close reconnaissance. Having arrived from Scarries, lighthouse keeper Sam Glanville, his wife, two daughters and one son, were settling in nicely to a rural life at the Galleyhead Lighthouse. It was a bit of a culture shock from having previously been at the very busy Scarries and Cove. For 10-year-old Mary Glanville, it was a case of observing and taking stock, as children do. Two things that spring to mind for her in those early Galleyhead days are road bowling and, for some strange reason, but let's find out, sugar beet. The man who brought us out in the pony shop, the O'Driscoll man, I can't remember his first name, he started to talk about road bowling, only they pronounce it bowling. And ever since then, I've always, I don't know why I've had an interest in, in road bowling, but he explained because we'd come across the viaduct on our way to West Cork from Albert Key down to Clown, on you changed trains in Gagan and in you came to Clonacill. But he explained this man called Mick Barry, who lofted the viaduct which means, I think, throwing an iron roundy ball of a certain weight. Oh, you know the viaduct there is you? I do. Yeah. yeah. He got that a certain weight of a ball, and he was quite famous, and he remained famous, Mick Barry. And the other thing was then was the sugar beet. We had never seen sugar beet. Shortly after, my mother was quite nervous, I think. Shortly after we came to the Galleyhead, we were going to Mass one Sunday. Now, the farmer who did our shopping for us took us, you no, know, we happened to be Catholics, he took us to whatever church you wanted twice in the month. Otherwise, we walked, or my father would cycle, depending. And we were going to Mass this Sunday in the pony and trap, and there was a heap, we thought there were parsnips. There was a heap of sugar beet here on the side of the road. The blooming horse reared up. The trap upended, we all tumbled out. Now, nobody was hurt. And it was quite frightening, but that's how I found out that sugar beet is sugar beet and it isn't parsnips. If you look at it first, it's gone now, as we know. Anyway, I think, I'm not sure did we go home or what did we do. Possibly there was broken tackling. This is how life went on, quite ordinary, quite different. Strange, we spent a lot of time out on the cliffs. And because and of meandering... Uh, yeah, and because it was wartime then, looking out to sea, was was it busy out there? Was there a lot of ships passing? Well, it was hard to know. No, I had an uncle who was, at the time, he was with Irish shipping. And they did a lot for Ireland, the little fleet of Irish shipping. They were all named after trees. And he would have news. I don't know how my father used to get news, you see. He seemed to know what was going on in the world around us. Now, at the time, my mother and father wrote to their parents. And I never could work out. We'd get the paper occasionally. Eventually, we got it posted to us. I'm presuming there was probably censorship in the paper. And he seemed to know what was going on. And we knew a certain amount. We knew there was a war somewhere. We didn't know who it was, was fighting who. But we knew we were not enemies of anybody in this particular war. And I don't know whether we knew what had been going on in Cove, because you forget things when you're young. The wreck of German submarine U-260 lies three nautical miles south of Glandor Harbour. It lies in a sandy bed 45 to 50 metres below the surface, so it's a substantial dive. Over the course of the past 20 years or so, Brendan Cahill has dived on this site on numerous occasions. For him, seeing the wreck come into view for the very first time conjured up a mixture of emotions. It's an amazing sensation and feeling 
to see this wreck loom out of the darkness. The visibility on it can be can be very, very variable. I was fortunate enough that the first time I actually dived on it, the visibility was very good and it was visible from maybe 60 feet above, 20 metres. We were 20 metres away from the wreck when it first became visible and to just see this thing. It heads off, you know, at the bow and the stern. We, we came down somewhere around the conning tower, which would be in the centre of the wreck and to see this just loom out of the dark. It's quite an eerie feeling as well in one sense, but it is, it's it's a phenomenal and anybody that does deep wreck diving will be able to, to identify with it. It's it's an amazing sensation to see it. Yeah. Amazing. And I, I, I presume from a diver's point of view, unlike other wrecks, you don't feel guilty coming back because it's not a grave. Yeah, That's, yeah it is. Uh, again, and as I, I mentioned, eerie, when you dive on some of the other wrecks that where life has been lost, obviously you have to show respect. Now, that's not to say that you wouldn't respect the, the likes of the, the U-boat, but it doesn't have that pall hanging over it, I suppose, that you would have maybe, you would be conscious of with, on a wreck where, you know, people have died on it. Notwithstanding that, it is still, I w- I'd say solemn maybe is, is, you know, because this was a vessel of war as well. And, you know, that you do realise the enormity of what you're seeing as well, that, you know, you're, you're actually getting a, an insight into the past as well. Diving is very dangerous and it demands respect regardless of what depth. You go Very down, you, so, you yeah, go down to yeah. This is forty-five meters, roughly below the surface. It involves decompression and hopefully not the bends. Yeah, in relation to it, it is. It's it's a very deep wreck in sports diving terms. It's forty-five meters. It's at the limit of what qualified sports divers basically are allowed to do. If you're to dive on this wreck and to dive dive as per sports diving regulations you will only be able to spend maybe seven, between seven and eight minutes on the wreck, which means that given the fact that you have to travel down to a depth of 45 metres, which will take you a minimum of two minutes, your time is very, very limited on it. In order to extend that, you can do decompression diving on it. Having said that, it's not for the faint-hearted, it's not for the careless, and it's certainly not for anybody that's not properly trained and properly equipped to do that kind of diving. And unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, like any deep wreck, it, it has shown, you know, the hazards that are attaching to it to dive on, that, on a wreck that deep. As well as bringing you the story of U-260, both these programmes will also give you an insight into what life was like for the people of Ireland during World War II. 
For instance, the introduction of a system of children's allowances in Ireland was a very important social policy measure, particularly given the fact that it took place during the Second World War. Children's allowances represented an entirely new form of welfare payments, costing no less than £2,250,000 per annum and representing an increase of over one quarter in then expenditure on income maintenance payments. Because there were three of us and it was a third and subsequent children, so my sister qualified as a children's allowance. I can't remember what benefit was given. No. My mother had three children. There was yeah. me, my brother and my sister. She was, she was the youngest, so yeah. because she was the third, she qualified for the children's allowance. Oh, right, yeah, and there yeah. was never any more of us, but yeah. in other families. Anyway, they had to go to Milltown Post Office to get the children's allowance. Yeah. That's an aside now to do with anything. Yeah. Anyhow, life went and on. We were talking about Americans and we were talking about yes. uh, rationing and yes. how you cope with yes. it. And the shopkeeper then kept her, he proceeded well, all the paperwork, was it? They had to keep the record. Yeah. Now you could, there was a public, it's still there, the public house at Fisher's Cross. You could get bread there. And I'm not quite sure what else. So Hulahan's Hulahan took over from Sheehy's at some stage while we were at the Galley Head because there used to be a man with a... And I saw them in Cove as well, a little baker's thing pulled by a horse, brought the bread out to the Galley Head and it went around the town in Cove and the milkman in Cove went around with the little thing and poured out the milk. And in fact, I saw that done in Clonakilty for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Two different families sold milk from a little... They may have eventually done it with a a motor car and a trailer, but you'd see them a horse thing. But anyway, my uncle Tommy was in, on this ship, the Irish Larch, and he used to go to America and back. And it seems a lot of Irish shipping kept Ireland fed during the war because they travelled back and forth and submarines and God knows what going on yeah. in the and war. It was but very dangerous, wasn't it? Extremely dangerous. Yeah. And he used to bring back this magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, which we absolutely adored. It was a great big colourful magazine. All sorts of articles that made no sense to us, but I remember an advertisement. Remember Pearl Harbour by war bonds. And nobody ever explained to me what was Pearl Harbour. And I'm sure I asked my father and he never said. And of course I found out eventually what all that was about. And it was an advertisement to support the war effort, you see. Suddenly America was in the war and we heard about it. America was like... I don't know what it was, fairyland nearly. A lot of people had this approach to America, a marvellous place. But we never really saw Americans as such. We just heard about these Americans and that they were something in the war. And there'd be articles in the Saturday evening post about a man called Patton. He was a general doing something. On programme two next week, Klaus Becker leaves Norway and guides U-260 along the west coast of Ireland towards West Cork. But what exactly was his mission, and why did he meet the commander-in-chief of the German Navy before he left? And why was Becker's logbook resealed, not to be reopened until the year 2045? My thanks to Betty Hennessy in Tlagok, whose initial suggestion got these programmes up and running. Thanks to the military archives for their help, and to you for sharing time with us. Join me, John Green, for programme two Sunday next at seven. But until then, have a great week, and goodbye for now.